Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning. Thank you for joining me for another exciting episode of New Book Network's African American Studies podcast. I am your host, Katrina Anderson. Today, I am joined by Dr. Michael Taylor, who is a historian of colonial slavery, the British Empire, and the British Isles. Isles. He graduated from Cambridge with a double first in history. His PhD, which was the first detailed history of the ideas and activities of the British pro-slavery library, forms the research of his book. He has since worked as a research associate on on a project at Tel Aviv University and a lecturer in modern British history at Balfour College, Oxford, and is now employed by PwC. He was a champion of the University Challenge in 2015 and a finalist in the 2018 series of BBC's Mastermind. Today, we will be discussing his book, The Interest, How the British Establishment Resisted the the Abolition of Slavery. Thank you for joining me today, Dr. Taylor. Uh, Thank you very much, Katrina, for the invitation. I'm delighted to be here. So can you tell us a little bit about the book? So um, the book emerged, as you said, from my PhD, um, and it may be useful to begin with the genesis of the PhD, which was, I thought, going to be a fairly narrow study um, of how British slaveholders and their allies uh, used religion and the Bible uh, to buttress their cause. So initially, it was just going to be a look at scriptural theology uh, and how different parts of the Bible would have been deployed for but mostly against the idea of abolition and emancipation. Whenever I started doing that research, whenever I started going through the archives and uh, looking at the books uh, which had been written about slavery uh, in the late nineteenth, uh, sort of late eighteenth and early nineteenth century, it became increasingly clear that really nobody had ever looked at the wider campaign uh, in terms of the ideas that were deployed uh, in, in that kind of detail before. So the PhD became wider intellectual history um, of the pro-slavery campaign uh, that the West India interests, uh, by which I mean uh, the West Indian slaveholders um, who were often in London absentees from the West Indies at the time, uh, the ideas that they deployed uh, against the abolitionists and emancipationists from 1823, which is when um, the British campaign against colonial slavery began. Um, so you then mentioned that I, um, you know, had a couple of academic jobs, very short term. Um, I've not. I've since twenty eighteen. I've worked for PwC, and if I had remained in academia, I think I would have published uh, again a relatively narrow monograph uh, version of the PhD of the dissertation. Um, but whenever I was in the corporate world, I probably wasn't going to spend all that much time uh, doing the additional research that would have been necessary. But there was a gap in the market uh, to tell the story uh, about the fight over slavery and emancipation in Britain, uh, especially in the 1820s and the early 1830s. Because Britain has this kind of self-mythology uh, about how William Wilberforce, who doesn't really play much of a part in this book, had abolished slavery 
everybody assumes that he just did this, that it was a fait accompli, uh, that this incredible wave of Christian sentiment uh, trumped every other concern and that Britain led the world uh, in embarking upon this moral crusade. Now, of course, that's just not true uh, in the sense that... Uh, what Wilberforce was really involved in was the abolition of the slave trade. Uh, and it's important to note that contemporaries regard the slave trade uh, in enslaved African people um, as economically, legally, morally, religiously distinct from enslavement and slavery itself. Um, so whenever the abolitionists succeeded in 1807 in abolishing the British slave trade from March 1808, um, they did nothing about slavery itself. In fact, several times during their campaign, they made the point that they would not attempt to touch slavery itself. Uh, Wilberforce in 1805 stood up in the House of Commons and said, it would be madness to attempt to give freedom to the Africans until they were fit to receive it. Uh, And this is really uh, getting at the idea that was very, very prevalent at the time, both among abolitionists and slaveholders, uh, that the African people who were enslaved in the West Indies were uncivilized, that they were savage, and that they simply would not work in a free society for wages, and that therefore uh, the colonies and the slave economy and maybe the whole imperial economy would collapse on account of that. So 1808, whenever the last slave ship docks in Liverpool and Bristol and Glasgow and London and all the great slaving ports of the British Empire... Nothing changes for almost three quarters of a million people who remain enslaved in colonies in the West Indies, such as Jamaica and Barbados and Antigua. Um, In fact, the British Empire over the next few years continues to grow in terms of its slave colonies, because at the end of the Napoleonic Wars, uh, the British seize Demerara uh, on the northern coastline of South America. They also take Mauritius in the Indian Ocean. And so by 1823... The abolitionists are completely disappointed in what they've done. They had hoped, maybe, perhaps, that if uh, the slaveholders had been forbidden from importing fresh blood, as they called it, there would be a movement within the colonies, a realization that they had to really do something and treat, treat, treat the people on their slaves slightly better. Whereas previously enslaved Africans had been regarded as disposable property, as property that could be worked literally to death. And the average uh, life expectancy of a person, of an adult, once they were put to work uh, in the slave colonies, uh, in the British colonies, was seven years. That was no longer the case. So the abolitionists had hoped that by cutting off the supply of new enslaved people, that gradually and gradually the slaveholders would treat uh, the people in their plantations better uh, and that there would be a transmutation into what they called a free black peasantry. By 1823, that hasn't happened at all. As I've said, the British slave empire has grown. In fact, the slave populations in the colonies have grown as well. So there are now 800,000 people in the British colonies uh, who remain enslaved. And from 1823, from the foundation of the Anti-Slavery Society uh, in January 1823, uh, they met in a small pub uh, in the centre of London. I've tried to find the pub. It no longer exists. The address no longer exists. I think it's been replaced by uh, a chemist and a budget travel agent, very sadly. Um, The Anti-Slavery Society was formed and they began this campaign. And the book that I've written tells the story of the next 10 years. About that campaign, how those campaigners were resisted by the slaveholders, by their allies, by conservative politicians, by imperialists, uh, and how the campaign for emancipation, for ultimate emancipation, uh, was eventually resolved. Now, I have to ask you, who 
was involved in the West India interests. As from your title of the book, The Interest, who was involved in this entity? Who was so adamant about resisting the abolition of slavery? That's a very good question. Uh, perhaps before I answer that directly, it might be worth explaining what an interest is. Uh, because unlike uh, American politics at the time, uh, where you have, you know, the Federalist Party has basically died, there is the Democratic Republican Party, uh, there's the nascent Jacksonian democracy. In Britain, there are very, very loose coalitions of people. There isn't a formal political party political structure like we would know today. So there are Tories uh, who are broadly high church Anglican, probably conservative, uh, with ties to the landed interest. Uh, and there are Whigs, which is uh, a relatively loose coalition uh, of liberals. They're more likely to be interested in trade and finance, and they're more likely to be sympath- sympathetic to religious to- toleration. But on certain issues in Parliament uh, and elsewhere in uh, in the British public sphere, um, issues were defined more sharply by things called connections and interests. So connections were the were the bands of people who followed the big beasts of politics. So people like the Duke of Wellington or Robert Peel or George Canning, whom I'm sure we'll go on to discuss later. Uh, interests were those groups of people who were united by specific issues. So the landed interests wanted to protect the price of corn and bread. Um, the West India interest wanted to protect the interests of the slaveholders and the traders with the West Indies uh, in things like sugar and cotton and indigo and coffee. So the interests themselves, they are this band of slaveholders, mostly uh, absentees, mostly living in London and Glasgow and Bristol, who own the plantations, who own the people who work in those plantations in the West Indies. Uh, It also involves the merchants uh, who are involved in trading in the goods that they produce. Uh, They also have a number of allies in the conservative press. Now, at the time, whenever this campaign begins, the press is is pretty mightily stacked against the abolitionists. There are two major journals, uh, and you know the Review Journal is really the the key medium of the day. Uh, the Westminster Review and the Edinburgh Review, who are sympathetic towards the abolitionists, but almost everybody else is in favour of maintaining the status quo. Is hesitant about. Uh, embracing this campaign for abolition and emancipation. So you have major periodicals like Blackwood's Edinburgh Magazine, The Gentleman's Magazine, uh, The Quarterly Review, which is maybe the most important uh, magazine in the English-speaking world at the time. Later on, you have The Spectator and The Times and John Bull, uh, very, very conservative uh, institutions at the time, uh, who again rode in behind the slaveholders. So you have this massive conservative press, and then you have the financial interest behind it. So not necessarily involved directly in the business of slavery uh, or in trading in slave-produced goods, but you have insurance companies and bankers who are financing and underwriting a lot of that business. So you can think perhaps of the interest in concentric circles going from the slaveholders out to the traders, to their friends in the press, to their allies, to general conservatives, um, And within the interest, and this is a parliamentary history in some respects, you have possibly upwards of 100 MPs um, who can be relied upon to vote in favour of delaying measures of emancipation or of trying to kill measures of emancipation altogether. Now, 100 MPs out of 650 or 660 may not sound like very much. But remember, at the time, this is not... Um, the case where we have formal party politics, we have we don't have three line whips. In fact, Lord Liverpool at the time really resented ever having to whip people through votes. Um, if 
if if if a hundred people turned up for a vote, that was okay. Um, you know, if three hundred people turned up, that was a really really serious matter. So if you have a hundred MPs ready to do your bidding, that's a pretty formidable political interest. And how opposed were those, as you say, merchants and slaveholders to anti-slavery ideas? So there are rhetorical devices that all of these people use um, in their objections to emancipation. Um, A lot of them say at the very start of everything, well, of course, in theory, I am opposed to this on a purely moral plane. Nobody could be, uh, nobody could object to emancipation or to abolition. Um, Of course, they then spend the majority of whatever they write or say uh, arguing against that proposition. Um, There are several really quite powerful reasons, powerful in the sense of what people thought and believed at the time um, that were given for maintaining the status quo and for maintaining slavery. Um, the first is biblical and religious. I mean, this is where my interest in the subject first belonged, uh, first began. Um, and it's important to remember that this is an incredibly sincerely religious society. Um, whenever people appeal to the Bible, um, this was not you know, cheap rhetoric. This was often quite serious. People believed literally in the truth of the Bible. So whenever they looked through the verses of the Old Testament, they saw Noah, um, calling on God to punish his son Ham for not covering up his nakedness. And then Ham's son Canaan would be the servant of servants for eternity uh, and Canaan's descendants. Uh, You then have uh, other patriarchs in the Old Testament, like Abraham, Joshua, who had slaves. Um, Later on, the Israelites make uh, slaves of the Gibeonites. The Israelites themselves are made slaves, not only in Egypt, but later in Babylon. And so a lot of these British slaveholders are looking at these verses and these stories in the Bible and saying, well, you know, if in the Old Testament... Um, this was okay. I mean, it must. It, if it was okay then, it must be okay now because God doesn't change his mind because God's justice is eternal um, and God's justice was there from the very beginning. And he, of course, would not have condoned uh, anything that was immoral. So we must be okay to do this. Um, they then could look at the, the New Testament and you'd think that the, the abolitionists would be on stronger ground here. But that was not necessarily the case because although Christ preached um, a much more humane message, um, Paul did not necessarily. So uh, you have um, in the book of Philemon, the slave Onesimus um, going to Paul, you know, fleeing from slavery, fleeing from his master at Corinth, going to Paul at Rome, and Paul converting Onesimus to Christianity, but then sending him back um, to serve his master. You have repeated um, sort of exhortations in Paul in some of the letters that servants should be obedient unto their masters. And despite the humanity of Christ's message, a lot of the slaveholders would then argue, well, you know, Christ was right about everything. Of course he was, but he didn't say anything about slavery. And there was slavery everywhere within, you know, in, in, in Roman Palestine, throughout the Roman Empire. It was a slave society. So if, if Christ did not see fit to criticize it then, and he saw fit to criticize everything else, then clearly, in their view, there could not have been anything wrong with it. So that religious ideology was a key part of it. The second was racial and civilizational. Um, So at the time, this is infused with the Enlightenment idea of stadial theory, which is the idea that every society, every civilization goes through different stages of development. So in the beginning, there were hunters and gatherers. The second stage of civilization uh, is tending pastorally to flocks. The third uh, is arable farming. And finally, at the very end, you have people living, dwelling in towns and trading in goods and services. 
Uh, and so lots of people within the Scottish Enlightenment, like uh, Ferguson and Smith and Hume, saw societies and civilizations making progress through these different stages. And of course, what this meant is that whenever Britons were insulted as a nation of shopkeepers, this was actually a civilizational compliment, because that was the apogee of what was thought to be civilized at the time. So whenever slaveholders took these ideas and applied them to slavery, they saw in Africa the very base level of civilization. They thought these were hunters, these were gatherers, they used incredibly racist language, they called them barbarous and savage and much worse besides. Um, and then they looked at the plantations in the West Indies and you know, skipping through the pastoral bit of, of the civilizational scale. They thought, well, if we are enslaving these people who were uncivilized in Africa within the, the third arable stage of civilization, then we must be doing a good thing. We must be raising them in the scale of civilization. And I think if any of your listeners are familiar with um, the pro-slavery ideology of the American side, this was called a positive good. Um, I think John Calhoun possibly coined that phrase, but I may be wrong. Um, and this was what British slaveholders decades before Calhoun thought they were doing. They thought they were literally improving and civilizing the Africans whom they had enslaved by teaching them in European arts and teaching them how to farm crops. Leading from that into the economic um, was a concept called of, of, of artificial wants. And this, this is built into the civilizational discourse as well. So if we you know, go back to this idea of um, the most civilized type of society be, being people living in towns and cities and trading in goods and services, well, if they're trading in goods and services, that implies a demand for goods and services. And many of those demands will be for luxury goods um, and uh, many luxury services as well. And if that was what a civilized person wanted, they would look at the Africans and they would argue that, well, you know, we have rescued, in inverted commas, these Africans from a state of barbarism in Africa and we are training them in the arts of civilization, but they are not yet civilized. So they will not yet have the demand for goods and services that we white Europeans have. And what this meant, according to the pro-slavery ideologues, was that if you freed the slaves in the West Indies, they simply would not have the desire to procure goods and services. They would not have the demand. They would not have those artificial wants. And this would mean that there could be no incentive for them to work as laborers for wages. Uh, and in this ideology, this meant that the plantation economy would collapse. Now, we take that collapse of the slave economy, the collapse of the plantation economy, and put that in the context of the British Empire at the time. Uh, and if, you know, rem remember that around the turn of the 18th century, Britain was locked in a, in a battle really for, for survival with um, Napoleonic France. Um, the colonies were an incredibly valuable source, not only of materials, but of markets. And the pro-slavery ideologues in the 1820s and 1830s would go on to make the argument that if you free the slaves, you will collapse the West Indies as an economy. That will in turn collapse the wider imperial economy, and that will threaten Britain's prosperity as a whole. Um, so we have in train these religious, these racial and civilizational, we have, and the economic arguments all flowing one through the other, uh, creating this pro-slavery worldview. Um, that everybody within the West Indian interest was absolutely adamant, um, you know, were gold standard arguments that would win the day. You know, it's funny that you should mention all of those. And as you referenced earlier, you know, that 
essentially became much of the pro-slavery ideology of the American South, um, the ideas that they pushed. Um, so it's interesting to hear, you know, that the British were doing it way long before their American counterparts um, had gotten into it. Yeah, it, it, it is really interesting. And if I had remained in academia and if I had, could have uh, procured the research funding, one of the things I really wanted to look at is trying to trace the descent of these ideas um, in, into the American South. I mean, we definitely know for sure that lots of people in the American South were watching what was going on. Edward B. Rugemer has written a, a really good book about the problem of emancipation from the perspective of British emancipation from the perspective of American slaveholders. There were American consuls uh, in the British Caribbean uh, uh, sending really, really worried reports uh, about what was going on uh, back to Washington. Um, and certainly there's a lot of, well, there's, a, there's an enormous amount of scholarly literature on uh, pro-slavery in America. But if any PhD student is out there looking uh, for something really juicy to look into, I think tracing the development of these ideas from Britain in the 1810s, 20s and 30s into the American antebellum would be something really brilliant to do. That sounds like an awesome topic, but who knows? Maybe you will get creative and get sparked and you'll go back into it. You never know. Stranger things have happened. So who knows? You may have one of those research moments. But back to this book, there are a lot of, I want to call it, heroes and villains in this book. And one of those that I can think of, as you alluded to earlier, um, was George Canning. Can you tell us a little bit about him? Yeah, so, so so Canning is is a villain. Um, I think he's also a British anti-hero. So Canning is probably one of the most formidable political operators in Europe, if not the world, in the early 19th century. Um, and had he not died four months into becoming prime minister in 1827, I think his reputation would be much better known. So he began his political career as a protege of William Pitt in the 1790s, uh, really attacking the ideological extremities of the French Revolution and penning a lot of anti-Jacobin uh, literature in the British press. Um, he becomes one of the most established and most respected diplomats. Um, he duels with Castle Ray, both figuratively and literally. They, they did try to shoot each other in Putney Heath after disagreement um, over the Foreign Office. Uh, and from 1822, after Castle Ray's unfortunate suicide, Canning becomes not only Foreign Secretary um, within Lord Liverpool's government, but also leader of the House of Commons, because so many of the other major ministers were in the House of Lords at the time. And this means that Canning is the front man for the government in the House of Commons, which is, despite the number of peers within the government, uh, the most important forum for political debate uh, and political engagement. And so it is Canning in 1823, whenever Thomas Fall Buxton, who is the political leader, or the parliamentary leader of the campaign against slavery, who stands up and says, I, th I think we need to do something. I think we should propose measures to gradually emancipate and to ameliorate the condition of the enslaved people in the West Indies. It's Canning who stands up. Um, and Canning is described in pretty cutting terms by a lot of people. It's one said that he couldn't take tea with anybody without concocting a stratagem. Uh, and he stands up in the House of Commons in response to Fallbox and says, that's a very good idea. I think we should definitely do something about that. In fact, I will draft some re resolutions and I will send them to the House of Lords. In fact, more than that, I think Parliament should draft some resolutions and some recommendations to the West Indian colonists uh, about how they should better treat their slaves and about how um, we should really make some moves towards emancipation. 
But this was a complete dead letter. This was a masterpiece of you know, sort of political chicanery because Canning's best friend was the chairman of the West India Interest, Charles Rosellas. And in fact, several weeks before um, the campaign began in, par- began in Parliament, the West India Interest Standing Committee had already met and drafted the resolutions that Canning would subsequently recommend to the governments of the West Indian colonies. And they made sure that whatever, you know, however much it looked as if they were trying to undertake serious reform, these were measures which would not really interfere with the operation of the plantations that would not undermine the prosperity of the colonies. So Canning is a bit of a master in that respect. In that respect, you know, again in 1824 he does the same thing. Um, whenever there is the Demerara uprising in August 1823, uh, and even when uh, the anti-slavery movement acquires its first white martyr in the missionary John Smith, who is blamed in the colonies for that uprising and dies in prison in Georgetown. Um, Canning moves, he passes an order in council, which is the equivalent uh, of an American executive order, um, that all of the measures that he had proposed in 1823 must be implemented in a colony. But he chooses Trinidad. Uh, Trinidad doesn't have its own chartered assembly, so he's not upsetting all the planters in the same way that would have happened in places like uh, Jamaica or Barbados, which have their own mini parliaments. Um, And it's also one colony. So again, it's a means of appearing to reform without really doing very much. And this continues for a few years. Um, This continues through to 1827. Um, And Canning, after Lord Liverpool has a stroke, um, eventually achieves what he's been looking for for 20 odd years, which is the the premiership. He becomes prime minister of Great Britain. Um, But he He's sick. Um, He was sick whenever he took over. He gets worse over the course of the summer. Uh, He he becomes prime minister in April 1827. By August, he's dead. Uh, And until last year, that made him the shortest serving prime minister in British political history until Liz Truss beat all possible records and expectations by being outlived by a lettuce. Um, If you haven't seen that meme or whatever the Daily Star newspaper did here, you should look that up. Um, So Canning could, if you judged him simply on the length of his premiership, be deemed a failure. But he was really one of the most masterful political, political operators of the early 19th century. He may be more famous in American circles for drafting the basis of the Monroe Doctrine, uh, because uh, it was he who proposed to Richard Rush, who was American minister in London at the time, uh, the core principles that would later be adopted as the Monroe Doctrine. Now, why he wanted to do that, and this is important as a means of explaining his opposition to emancipation and slavery, is that in the 1810s and the 1820s, the former Spanish Empire had begun to crumble. So we have new republics uh, rising out of the ashes of the Spanish Empire, many of them inspired by Simón Bolívar. So we have Mexico, we have the Federal Republic of Central America, Gran Colombia, and later Ecuador, Peru, Bolivia, Chile, uh, Rio Plata, which becomes Argentina, and then later Uruguay. And in all of these places, British merchants have poured in money that they could not otherwise have done whenever the Spanish were in charge. Um, It was also not lost in a lot of these um, uh, investors that these places had been abolishing slavery almost immediately as they achieved their emancipation. But That's maybe a a part of another discussion. Um, And so Canning really, instead of caring deeply about the independence of these new republics. He, he wanted not only to protect British investments in it, in, in those places, but he also wanted to, to, to prevent the French um, from picking up the pieces. Uh, because at the time, the French government was, try, was trying to manoeuvre uh, to get lots of Bourbon princes you know, after the restoration of the Bourbon monarchy in 1815 uh, to become the new monarchs uh, of these new Spanish uh, or the formerly Spanish uh, colonies. So 
Canning is playing a much wider strategic game here. He sees opportunities for British merchants in the British Empire commercially in Latin America. He wants to protect that through the Monroe Doctrine. He wants to uh, protect the investments that British investors have made. Um, and he also wants to protect the British West Indies as a really, really valuable entrepot. So if you have in the British imagination these former Spanish-American colonies producing lots of gold and silver and tin uh, and lots of really valuable crops, well, the best place to begin international trade is probably the West Indies. Um, you know, why would European ships not dock in Jamaica or in Barbados before going on to trade with South America? And he wants to protect that. And he believes, he genuinely believes... Um, that if slavery is ended, then the slave economy will collapse and Britain will lose that role, um, not only as a guardian of the independence of South America, of the new South American republics, um, but it will also lose the opportunity to profit from the independence of those places. Wow. You know, as I was reading the book, you know, you could imagine him and his masterful negotiating. Um, and it was all, you know, he was almost playing both sides. You know, he was able to speak about what we're going to do. We're going to improve conditions and we're going to take steps towards emancipation, but really we're not doing anything um, as he was tied to the and, interest. And the, and the most curious thing of all is that in the original campaign against the slave trade, he was sincerely abolitionist. You know, he joined that campaign. He was a supporter of it. Um, but you, again, we need to understand the slave trade, which was a, was a dis discrete economic practice going from port to port to port and prohibiting people from undertaking that economic activity in the future. It was a very, very different thing from saying to British slaveholders, we are not only going to confiscate your property, but we are going to undermine the basis on which you've constructed your colonial society. So it was very, very different to abolish one thing from the other. Right. And that made it so much more difficult. Now, I have to ask you, was royalty, were they also opposed during this time, the members of the royal family or not? Um, so the members of the royal family at this time here are relevant. Um, George IV uh, becomes king uh, on the eventual death of his father, George III, in 1820. So um, for the first part of this campaign, uh, it is he who's on the throne. But what he thinks is probably irrelevant, because for basically until the Whigs take power in 1830, and really only until after they secure a reformed parliament, which is abolitionist in nature in 1832, there was never really any danger of a bill going through the House of Commons and the House of Lords and landing on the desk of the monarch, who would then be required to assent to it. Um, William IV was a slightly different matter. So William IV um, was the brother of George III, um, who becomes king in 1830 because George III, despite having dozens of illegitimate children, doesn't have a legitimate heir. Um, so William IV used to be the Duke of Clarence. He was known as the Sailor King because he served in the West Indies in the Royal Navy. And while he was in the West Indies, inevitably all the slaveholders gave him a grand old time. Lots of really, really drunken dinners, lots of tremendous shows, fireworks displays, um, you know, guns and salute. So William IV develops this idea really early on in his political career, whenever he begins serving in Parliament. Um, that actually everything in the West Indies is fine, that slavery is not this atrocity, uh, and that the people who are enslaved out there are happy. You know, this is one of the great lies that is uh, is reported back in Britain time and time again, and is believed by a lot of people simply because so few Britons have actually been to the West Indies. You know, many of the abolitionists that we talk about have never been. Wilberforce never visits the West Indies. 
um, Thomas Clarkson, who was probably the key organizer of the whole campaign and never visits the West Indies, Thomas Fulbuckson doesn't. Um, so there is a game of smoke and mirrors, and the West Indians for a very long time, the West Indians and their supporters for a very long time are winning that. And so whenever William IV becomes king a little bit later on, he is very, very reluctant to move against what he regards as his old friends in the West Indies. Um, he is determined not to endorse and not to give his assent to any measure of emancipation uh, and to consent to the abolition of slavery. And he writes letters at the time to the cabinet saying, I think this will be ruinous to the empire. I think it will be ruinous to the slaveholders. I think it will be ruinous to the enslaved people themselves because they, in his opinion, were completely incapable of looking after themselves without the you know, allegedly benevolent guidance of their masters. Um, it should be noted that uh, the king's private secretary then wrote a really hurried apology to the cabinet um, immediately after he sent that letter. Um, and so whenever everything finally gets through Parliament, there is a little bit of negotiation with the king. And, uh, and it, it, it seems uh, that he only assents because he is persuaded not only that the whole thing is his idea and that's very good and it should go ahead, but also, and this is, demonstrates a little bit of cognitive dissonance, that even if it goes ahead, it won't really work, so it won't affect the West Indies too badly. It should be said at this time that you know we have long departed um, that era of British history where the monarch is the, is the leading figure. I think really um, by the time that Pitt the Younger has um, ruled or uh, reigned, not uh, has been prime minister for um, 1784 to 1800 and then a, a little bit again. It, it, it is the prime minister in the cabinet and parliamentary government, which is more important than the monarch's opinion. Right. Most definitely agree with that. But it's all very fascinating um, how everything played out. Now, and you talked about this a little bit earlier, how we get to the um, the Anti-Slavery Society was founded in 1823. But with all this opposition that they were facing, how did they really get their beginnings? You know, how were they able to start tackling the issue of anti-slavery? Well, look, they knew they had um, a hill to climb. Um, the first thing they did was try to resurrect the old networks that they had built up um, during the campaign against the slave trade itself. So Thomas Clarkson, who's a really incredible figure, who's by this stage, I think about 60, um, a tall, broad-shouldered man, a trained in the church, um, had a really damascene moment when he was riding from Cambridge to London on his horse. He just won a prize-winning essay um, about why slavery was immoral. He'd written it in Latin in the 1780s. Uh, and he realized, that if I've just spent all of this energy on an intellectual effort to prove that slavery is immoral, why don't I try to do something about it? So from 1785, he'd been the real heartbeat of the whole abolitionist movement. And he, in 1823, jumps back on his horse and starts riding the length and breadth of the country, traveling hundreds and not thousands of miles on several journeys, going to all the old towns, to the Quaker meeting places, to the dissenting churches, um, to all his old friends and said, right, okay, we need to set up again. So he's finding all of these auxiliary uh, societies and auxiliary chapters. And I say chapters because women weren't allowed to join the auxiliary societies. So whenever they find chapters, that means that's where the women uh, could participate within the anti-slavery campaign because there was a really stark division between the official campaign and the unofficial campaign. And which one had more influence might be something we could discuss a little bit later. So Clarkson get this, gets this organizational thing going. Uh, he also begins geeing up petitions at the time. Um, so petitions um, 
are still quite a big part of parliamentary democracy in the United Kingdom, uh, but they were really, really demonstrative, really important, even more so in the early 19th century. Um, and they made more of an impression because they were physical petitions. Now we sign a form online uh, and we verify our email address and it goes off and you know we probably never see it again and there might not ever be a debate. But in the early 19th century, a petition meant... You know, hundreds, thousands of pages of heavy parchment all glued together. And so they started doing this again. So, um, you know, petitions would be walked around a lot of the, you know, the, the industrial heartlands where people were more likely to be abolitionists. Uh, the descending towns, they were taken around uh, church congregations who were likely to be favorable to the idea of emancipation. And these begin flooding in again. There begins um, anti-slavery literature, not only books and pamphlets, but an anti-slavery reporter, a monthly journal that would gather together as much information and quantitative data as they could find about slavery as a means of proving uh, statistically um, how desperate a situation um, the enslaved people in the West Indies were suffering. And they were doing this by means of demographic analysis. You know, what were the life expectancies of these people? What were the punishments being meted out to them? Um, what uh, were, they, were they being fed? How they were being clothed? They, If they could not bring pictures, if they, because, you know, the photograph and the camera hasn't been you know there's another 10 or 15 years before it's even invented how could they bring the reality of life in the plantation to people in britain who might be likely to be sympathetic to that cause and they tried to do it statistically as much as rhetorically wow it's just it's so fascinating to hear like you're facing so much opposition pretty much from most of society who's involved in this especially parliament especially the economic sector and I can only imagine what uphill battle that they faced during this time. And you mentioned Thomas Clarkson, um, who I consider as one of the heroes of your book, but there were others such as um, Zachary McCauley and Stephen Lushington. Um, Can you speak a little about their importance as well? So Zachary McCauley... um is maybe more famous, uh, he's maybe not famous at all, but he's maybe better known in historical circles as the father of Thomas Macaulay. He was a really eminent uh, British historian who later joins in the anti-slavery campaign in the early 1830s. Uh, But Macaulay, uh, as a young man, was nowhere near the stern Scottish Presbyterian that we might, or the evangelical that we might think of him. He, he had gone out to Jamaica, got drunk, uh, worked in a plantation, gambled a whole bunch, but then he too had this evangeliz- uh, evangelization. He, he had a, this damaging moment, this conversion, not only to a really deep and heartfelt Christianity, but to the abolitionist cause. And he becomes the statistical font, you know, the you know, the real authority of knowledge within the uh, the abolitionist campaign. And he's the editor of the anti-slavery monthly reporter. Um, you know, Wilberforce at the time says something like, "Well, if you know, if, if if you need anything, you just go and look it up, Macaulay. If you need any piece of information, he will have it." Um, so he trades uh, with Sierra Leone. Uh, so it was one of his major commercial interests. Sierra Leone had been set up uh, as an experimental free colony, uh, as an experiment in free African labor, uh, because after the uh, American Revolution, there had been lots of um, former slaves who had been promised their freedom uh, by British forces, by British loyalists. Um, and they had fought um, with the loyalists. They had fought with the British forces. Many of them had gone to Nova Scotia. Many of them had been taken back to Britain. Um, but many of them by the 1780s, by the 1790s, had become indigent. And the British government didn't really know what to do. There wasn't a welfare state. Uh, there wasn't employment. There was some discrimination. So what they attempted was a free colony in Sierra Leone. Uh, they uh, decided that they would set up um, what they regarded as this 
free beacon uh, in opposition uh, to so many of the slave trading ports and posts along the West African coast. Macaulay tried to trade as much as he possibly could with this. He was he was administrator of the Sierra Leone Company, um, and he had really committed his life uh, ever since um, his dissolute behavior as a youth to the abolitionist cause. Lushington comes... Um, it is not important. I, I mean, I, he is, you know, he is a great man. He's a great jurist. He goes on to serve uh, in some of the higher courts in Britain. Uh, and, and what he does, I think, uh, more than anything, is sustain the anti-slavery and the abolitionist campaign in 1824 and 25 and 26, when it looks like nothing is happening. Um, and you know, I don't want to, you know, diss the chapters in my book, um, which deal with this period, but between 1823, between the foundation of the campaign and the initial furore, which results from uh, the Demerara uprising, not much happens for seven years. They don't make very much progress at all. Um, but what they do and what Lushington excels at is picking up cause celebre um, to keep people interested uh, and to keep slavery and the injustice of slavery um, at the forefront of people's imagination. And what he does is take up the case uh, of two Black Jamaicans, uh, Lusane and Escoffrey, who have been deported from the island uh, on suspicion of being Haitian spies. So Haiti, as I'm sure many of your listeners will know, had secured its independence as a free black republic in 1804. And both the United States and France and the United Kingdom had regarded officially regarded Haiti um, as persona non grata because it was not it was a terrible example they thought to set to the enslaved Africans in their own colonies or in the American South. The last thing that they wanted was Haiti to shine as this beacon of what a free black republic could do. So they tried to strangle it at birth. There were no political relations or effectively embargoes the whole time. Um, so. Whenever abolitionist activity begins, and there are rumors of it in Jamaica, Lassane and Escoffrey, even though they are free black men who are entitled to vote, um, even though I, one of them, I'm pretty sure, and I'm, I'm reaching back into my research here, is a slaveholder himself, they are regarded as Haitian spies and they are deported. Whenever they get to Haiti, because the Haitians justifiably regard the, Britons, uh, the British with suspicion, they think that Lusane and the Scoffrey are British spies. So they end up uh, being, uh, they eventually find passage back to Britain, um, where Lushington takes up their case. He pleads it before Parliament, pleads it before the courts. They, are, he, they eventually receive significant compensation um, from uh, the British government in respect of their treatment of the hands of the Jamaican authorities. But it's so interesting that they were actually accused of being spies during this time. But you have to kind of think in, we can talk about this now, this idea of slave uprisings that occurred during this period um, and what that means for the anti-slavery movement because they are simultaneously happening in some respects. So you have uprisings that are going on in Barbados and British Guiana. And of course you have the really large one in Jamaica. Uh, so how does that fit into the whole narrative of the anti-slavery movement in terms of I can definitely see how this would go in that con side of the argument but how do they are they able to use that to their advantage or are they able to well, I, 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 it's a good question. And in this period, there are three major um, enslaved uprisings in the British colonies. The first one happens in Barbados in 1816. And it is allegedly caused by rumors of what was referred to as a slave registry. So after the abolition of the slave trade, um, 
British abolitionists were really concerned that a lot of um, slaveholders in the West Indies were getting around the prohibition on importing um, new Africans into the colonies uh, by effectively smuggling them and engaging in an illicit trade. So what they proposed was a slave registry. And this was essentially a census or a population count of every person in every colony. Now, the British slaveholders were absolutely aghast at this. They thought, much like the American colonists had done 50 years ago, that this was unwarranted interference in the internal affairs of their colonies. Uh, and those kind of um, you know, pseudo-American patriotic refrains are something that we hear time and time again during this, um, in these 15, 20 years. Um, but whenever rumor of this registry uh, reaches um, the literate enslaved people in Barbados who have read reports from um from from parliament they think that the slaveholders are in fact withholding some other kind of right or freedom that parliament has given them so there's an uprising there is an incredibly ferocious backlash not only against um the rebels but also against the abolitionists who are blamed for the whole thing and so the abolitionists retreat in fact um they you know you know they signed several assertions and declarations in the late 1810s saying yeah sorry we're not going to do anything about this we would not want to upset the apple cart like this again um the second great um enslaved uprising in this period is in demerara in august 1823 so um you know we referred in britain quite a lot of the time uh, to demerara sugar uh, which is brown sugar and that's where it gets its name um from this colony which the british had seized um from the french and the dutch um at, at the close of the napoleonic wars now again whenever this uprising takes place and it begins in the plantation belonging uh, to the father of William Gladstone, John Gladstone, who's the single largest slaveholder in the British West Indies at this time. Um, it happens four months after the start of the parliamentary campaign against slavery. So once again, it is the abolitionists who are blamed for giving false hope to the enslaved people in these colonies. And even though the abolitionists find their martyr in John Smith, there is again another political backlash. The news of the rebellion reaches George Canning at the very same time that he's having an audience with the abolitionist leaders. And forgive me if I don't quote this directly, but he says, as much as I am interested in the welfare of our black citizens, I will do nothing to sacrifice the welfare of our white citizens. Um, he would have said subjects rather than citizens, because obviously we're a monarchy. Um, but again, there's this idea that abolitionist agitation leads to unsettlement among the enslaved populations of the West Indies, which leads to violence and uproar. And the abolitionists can't do very much about this for a while, because whenever the Tories are in power, and they are in power pretty much consistently for 60 years between you know, the 1760s and the end, of, um, at the end of the 1820s, that's not going to shift, because the Tories are going to blame the uprisings on abolitionism. That changes whenever news of the Jamaican Rebellion of 1831-32, is known as the Christmas Rebellion or the Baptist War, reaches the new, slightly more liberal Whig government um, in the spring of 1832. So this rebellion is um, is plotted, it's planned, and it's led by uh, a really incredible character called Sam Sharp, who is a black Baptist deacon uh, in the northern parishes of Jamaica. And he and his lieutenants all have this plan that on Boxing Day, because the plantation uh, owners have denied them their holidays, which were um, by tradition given, that they are all go- not only going to 
effectively protest. They're going to down tools and do nothing, uh, but they will take the law into their own hands um, if, if they are not treated fairly, and they do. And uh, there is unwarranted carnage on both sides for a small period of time uh, in in the northern parishes par- par- of Jamaica. And there are the extrajudicial killings which are carried out by the vengeful planters and eventually by the British army uh, are really pretty gruesome. But what this does, um, and and Sharp himself becomes a martyr for the abolitionist cause, you know, vowing his he would rather die than um, at the gallows as he does, um, than give up his his dream of freedom. Whenever news of this and as news of the sustained very Christian resistance to slavery that um, the, the the enslaved people themselves um, have adopted in the West Indies. The Whigs in government finally realise actually it's not abolitionism that's causing the problem. It's not abolitionism that is causing the uprisings and the violence. It's slavery itself. So now, for the first time, they realise that if slavery continues, these uprisings and these rebellions will continue. And if they do, you know, we got lucky in Demerara. We got lucky in Jamaica. The next one will be even bigger, could be even more violent, and we might lose the colony itself. They feared the repetition of another Haitian revolution in the West Indies. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's, you know, I know definitely in the American South, we didn't have as many um, slave uprisings or rebellions, but the ones that we did have, it did instill fear um, among the Southern slaveholders. Yeah, and the Haitian Revolution was a spectre hanging over all of the white colonists and the government in London um, for all of this period. They were absolutely terrified that somebody would become the next uh, Toussaint Louverture. You know, and and it's it's worth remembering that uh, for all that uh, Britain celebrates itself as an abolitionist country during this during this period, um, during the 1790s, Britain sent its largest ever foreign expeditionary force to Saint Domingue in an effort to re-enslave the people and take the colony from the French. Um, the idea of a free black republic uh, or of black people freeing themselves from slavery was absolutely terrifying to the colonial authorities. And I will say, definitely agree with you that Dr. Taylor is saying on the American side, because the specter of Haiti, as you say, it loomed large, especially over American Southern slavery during this period. I mean, you know, Jefferson, he was watching very closely as to what was going on um, during this period. And that was that fear, especially as we had quite a few of the immigrants come over. Um, So it was always that fear of what would be heard and learned um, from the specter of Haiti during this period. But I want to ask you about it. I want to ask you about something. So we're talking about, you know, we have Sam Sharp, who's this figure who becomes a figurehead um, for the abolitionists. But were there other Blacks who you would say they were involved in. And I'm thinking more specifically of print culture, you know, the narratives of Equiano um, during this period. How important were those to the anti-slavery society? Well, I know with Equiano, he was more of the slave trade, but, you know, just in general, how important were narratives of former slaves to the abolitionist movement as it gained momentum? So you're absolutely right with with regard to the earlier campaign against the slave trade. People like uh, Ignatius Sancho and Olaudio Equiano um, and Arabacuano were really important. Um, their, their their books sold an awful lot of copies. They were they were rightly celebrated um, as leading lights of those campaigns. Um, 
in in the campaign against slavery itself, um, there are relatively few black voices for the first seven or eight years of the campaign. Um, in fact, um, whenever one of the royal commissions that is appointed to go and inquire into the state of um, apprenticed Africans who were in this sort of halfway house between slavery and freedom in the British Virgin Islands, uh, whenever the abolitionist interviewer, whenever the abolitionist commissioner trying to get the views and the opinions of those people, you know, it was a very difficult process. It was very, very hard to get black narratives from the West Indies and to reproduce them uh, in Britain. It was a very dangerous thing for an abolitionist to try to do. That changes in the early 1830s whenever uh, a woman called Mary Prince um, is taken to London as a slave by her master and is effectively abandoned because the state of slavery in, in Britain is still pretty grey from a legal perspective at this time. It's often assumed uh, that the Somerset judgment that was issued by Lord Mansfield in 1772 had abolished slavery in England itself. It hadn't. Uh, it had only, um, on, on a very narrow point of law, it had decided um, that it was unlawful for a person to re-enslave another and then to deport them back into slavery in the West Indies. So um, Mary is abandoned, but she eventually meets with representatives of the Anti-Slavery Society. Uh, And Thomas Pringle, who is uh, the secretary of the society at the time, really wants to know her story. So he takes it down, he writes it down, he's over many hours and lots of interviews. And um, Mary Prince's story is eventually published uh, in the early 1830s. And it survives as the best first-hand account of what slavery was like, uh, what the conditions were like, especially for a woman uh, in slavery in the British colonies in the 1810s and the 1820s. And it's pretty gruesome and it's pretty horrific and it takes quite a strong stomach to read a lot of it. The real problem is, and this is a problem, is that even the most well-meaning of people in Britain at the time find it quite difficult to relate to the experience of somebody like Mary Prince. Um, what um, actually happens is that in 1823, 1832 and 1833, it is the opinion of a white former plantation worker, a man called Henry Whiteley, who is the real catalyst. You know, Mary Prince is by some distance the more important historical document, but it's Henry Whiteley who has the greater propaganda effect because he is a person, you know, a, a white Briton, like the people who can vote, like the people who can elect people to parliament, who goes out to the West Indies as a pro-slavery person, doesn't think there's anything wrong with it for a while, and then comes back completely with his mind changed uh, and is aghast at slavery and goes and meets with the Anti-Slavery Society and says, you know, I can tell you my story. Uh, You know, I had a complete conversion on the issue. Maybe my story can have an effect. And it seems really perverse that somebody can give a, a really eloquent testimony or an autobiography of her own, you know, of her life and the horrors that she has suffered in slavery. And yet it's the story of a white man who has suffered none of that, who provides the greater propaganda boost to the abolitionists in the early 1830s. Um, Sadly, that appears to be the case. I know, it's just as I've been, I've read it a number of times because it's in my going to be in my dissertation. It is gruesome and it is horrific. Um, The abuse that she suffered, even though, you know, it went through with Pringle, Uh, Much of it was actually censored because you are going to the general public and there were certain things that she could speak to, speak of and were alluded to. But it is awful. But yet, as you say, it was Whiteley who was able to say, "Okay, this is really a bad institution. Yes, I did previously support it, but now not so much. Um, 
that serves as the catalyst for bringing about this change. And, you know, her voice for a very long time was silenced um, in her experiences. It is. I mean, this is some of the stories from her autobiography are really heartrending. I mean, the, the one that springs to mind immediately is, is the very start of the book, whenever she and all of her brothers and sisters are uh, dressed in their finest clothes, actually clothes that they wouldn't get to wear on a normal day. They are given them for the occasion. They don't know what's going on. And they're taken down to the market. And, you know, the only people that they know and love in the world are suddenly, you know, they're separated from one another as, you know, the brothers and sisters are bought by different slaveholders and they cry um, as the, the, the only people they've ever had any uh, sucker or warmth or, you know, emotional contact with are taken to different islands across the British Caribbean. Um, but yet it speaks to where political power lay in, the, in Britain in the 1830s, that it's Whiteley's um, account of the same thing that has the greater effect. Yeah, and so, you know, she was a black woman, but what about just like women in general, general, like going to white women during this movement? What was their role in the anti-slavery movement? I was thinking about um, Elizabeth Herrick. Um, Did they play a much larger role? So, um, as I mentioned previously, women were formally excluded from the abolitionist campaign. Wilberforce himself said, you know, it would be improper and very unseemly for women to be involved in um, such political activity. Um, but Elizabeth Hayrick was a was a force to be reckoned with. She was um, a, a Leicester housewife, but a housewife who was nonetheless politically active and socially active. Um, and in 1824, she published the first of a series of pamphlets in which she called for immediate emancipation. You know, no mealy-mouthed reforms, no piecemeal reforms. She wanted emancipation now, and she wanted it immediately. Um, and as a means of um, hurrying things up, she called for a sugar boycott. Uh, and this was really quite a clever means of um, shifting power and affecting what the West Indians really cared about, which was their bottom line, because... You, she might not and her friends may not have, as women had, the right to vote or to um, stand for parliament uh, or really to influence um, mainstream political discourse. But they could stand in their shops, you know, governing uh, the purse strings of their households, and they could choose not to buy sugar that came from the West Indies. They could choose to buy sugar that came from the East Indies, which, um, although you know, the conditions were pretty dreadful there, it wasn't chattel slavery. Um, so in this way, by creating this you know, grassroots groundswell of a campaign um, to boycott sugar, to buy only free produce, they really did make a difference. And this was, again, one of the things that since sustained the abolitionists, which kept abolitionist activity um, on the go through the, you know, the dark days of the 1820s and the late 1820s, um, where they couldn't really achieve anything in Parliament. Wow, it's so fascinating, you know, and you think about this Wilberforce saying, no, this is not proper for women, but yet, you know, and in similar respects here on the American side, though, you know, women, they became a force to be reckoned with um, for the American abolitionist movement. And it was through, you know, petitioning, and it was through, as you say, having the purse strings that they were able, and over here also, it was the lecture circuit, um, was what many women started to do as well. It was through those efforts that they were able um, to promote abolitionism on the American side. But it's just so fascinating to hear that it's like it's not the proper thing for women to do yet. Herrick was like, you know what, I'm doing it. And she did. So that's really nice that she able that she did that. She did. And, and you're, you're absolutely right to mention petitioning, because um, certainly from the 1830s, whenever um, the campaign 
for immediate emancipation is adopted by uh, you know the parent bodies um, within the abolitionist movement. Um, it's again the women who play a key role in in, in garnering the signatures on the petitions and stitching them together and delivering them into the House of Commons. You know, enormous petitions with hundreds of thousands of signatures that you know take several men to carry on their backs into the House of Commons. You know, there, there's a lot of a lot of really great scholarship about the role of women in the British abolitionist activity, but it's just not at you know the forefront, um, at least in terms of the high political stuff. Right. And that, that makes a lot of sense. Now, there was an interesting, um, co- I want to say coinciding discussion that's going on in your book, and it comes to the figure of Daniel O'Connell, and he was involved in Catholic emancipation. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that ties, you know, as I could see the thread as to how that would be, you know, happening and how that ties in some ways showing a trajectory of what's going on with the anti-slavery movement during the time. Sure. And, and, and this is maybe the, you know, the, the, you know, the end of the high political narrative here. Um, and in some respects, what I've written is a pretty old fashioned political narrative history because, um, no, it's not the case that there was a massive um, sweeping movement which just achieved everything that it was going to and that it was always going to happen, that it was a fait accompli. What happens really begins in 1828 in Ireland. So Daniel O'Connell is an incredibly eloquent, persuasive campaigner for the emancipation of Catholics. Um, Catholics in Ireland face a number of discriminatory measures um, and they cannot take seats in Parliament. In order to take a seat in Parliament, you have to subscribe um, to articles of Anglican faith. That did not, however, prevent somebody like O'Connell from standing for Parliament. So in 1828, he wins a by-election for a seat in County Clare. But he can't take a seat because he's a Catholic. So the government at the time, and it's the Duke of Wellington who's taken over in 1828-29, is faced with the potential of civil war in Ireland, where Catholic nationalists are incredibly well, on, on the verge of violence, on the verge of civil war. And Wellington, the old soldier, soldier just cannot tolerate this idea. So he and his home secretary, Robert Peel, even though they abhor the idea of allowing Catholics into Parliament, agree that they have to do this for the good of the country. And they pass Catholic emancipation. There, there had been you know, decades and decades of dispute and debate over whether Catholics should be allowed in the British House of Parliament. Um, it had been refused several times by George III. George IV himself wasn't keen on it, but recognised that he had to do it. What this does is splits the Tories in two. So the Tories now have this band of ultras, um, and I, I don't want to make any kind of crude analogy, but if you can imagine you know, the Tea Party or the Freedom Caucus, the, the incredibly right wing of the Republican Party saying, well, okay, even if you've done, if you've passed this measure for the benefit of the country, we, we, we despise this, so we're not going to back you anymore. So suddenly, mainstream conservatives within the British Tory party can't command a majority in the House of Commons, especially after the Duke of Wellington stands up in 1830, after potentially losing his majority, you know, again, because numbers aren't so precise we don't exactly know and he says i will never countenance the reform of the house of parliament he will never extend the franchise he will never um get rid of a lot of the rotten boroughs and pocket boroughs um which are dominated not coincidentally um by the west indian interest and to explain what a rotten or a pocket borough is if um, your listeners don't know i mean whereas you know we might think nowadays of having roughly co-equal sizes of constituency um you know in britain it's maybe about a hundred thousand people uh, per constituency 
back in the day, you could elect two MPs with four voters or seven voters um, or 10. Um, you know, and, and these were all controlled uh, by political magnates. So he wouldn't countenance any kind of political reform. His government collapses because of it. This allows in the Whigs. They are not radicals. They are not necessarily liberal about, about, about a whole bunch of things, but they are in favour of reforming Parliament. And they eventually, after a hell of a lot of fighting, about rioting, about the potential for civil war in England itself, uh, we've come quite close to a revolution in May 1832, get to pass the Reform Act, the Great Reform Act, as it's known in British history. Uh, and this transforms the shape of Parliament itself. Not only does it get rid of a lot of the rotten and pocket boroughs, but it gives the vote to a lot of people in places like Manchester and Birmingham and Sheffield and Leeds, you know, cities of tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people who had no vote for Parliament before, suddenly get to do that. And they are more likely to be slightly liberal. And at the time, whenever the first Parliament uh, is elected, whenever this first reform Parliament and the campaign begins, what the abolitionists do is orchestrate a masterful pledge campaign. They send lecturers around the country, they go to the candidates, and they demand of them, will you vote for slave emancipation? Um, and the candidates say, yes, okay, you've got my vote. So 217 MPs signed the pledge for immediate emancipation in the election of 1832-33. Only five of them lose. So immediately you have 212 MPs who are bound to vote for emancipation whenever it comes before the House of Commons. So finally in 1833, and bear in mind what we've just said about the Jamaican Rebellion, the government has finally realised that the persistence of slavery is causing these violent revolutions in the West Indies. Um, you have a majority for um, emancipation and you have a government who's willing to push it through. Of course, what's left um, is to deal with the matter of compensation. Wow. You know, and it's, you know, it's interesting as all of this is happening, you know, simultaneously, you're having this push to end slavery as well um, in within the British Caribbean. And so I want to ask you, when do we finally get to that full emancipation that, you know, comes about? We've talked about, okay, things are going to get better and, you know, it's not that bad too. You know, with Herrick, she's like, you know, we need more immediate. So when do we eventually get that immediate? Well, th there's a little bit of political negotiation to go first because you know, the, the last word I said in the, in, in the previous answer was compensation. It was even, yeah, yeah, because e e even if you have a majority in Parliament in favour of ending slavery and a government willing to do something about it, the problem is the British Parliament over several hundred years has recognised property in other human beings as being lawful. So what are you going to do about an entire colonial economy that's based and rooted in this you know, horrendous form of property, chattel slavery? And they have to compromise. It's the only way to keep the West Indians on board. It's the only way to uphold the rule of law. So... Um, after some pretty torturous negotiation, by the summer of 1833, they agree, the British government agrees to pay to the slaveholders, not to the enslaved people, £20 million in compensation for the confiscation of their property. Now, £20 million is, depending on which calculation you use, at least several billion pounds in today's money. Uh, but as a percentage of government expenditure in 1833, it was 40%. So if you can imagine you know, a major G7 nation today spending 40% of what they do, okay, admittedly, the state has grown considerably, but 40% is a hell of a lot of money, regardless of what time you're looking at. Um, and it's the largest single payout uh, in British history until the banking bailout of 2007-8. Um, so 
once this is done, once the deal is done, and some abolitionists are absolutely aghast because they think it recognizes that slavery is lawful, but they go along with it because they think it's the only way. Um, they agree that on the 1st of August, 1834, chattel slavery will formally end um, in, in the colonies uh, that, are, that are governed by this act. It's worth saying that slavery itself goes on in British India until 1843. Uh, but at that time, it was governed by the East India Company rather directly by the government. So we have on the 1st of August, 1834, the Jubilee, the Emancipation Day. But that's not to say that, that freedom happens immediately, because in addition to receiving all of this money, the British slaveholders have negotiated something else. But going back to that old racist assumption that Africans would not be capable of working as free men and free women for, for wages on a plantation, they have managed to secure something called the apprenticeship, which is at least six years in the initial deal of the same labor by the same people on the same, the same plantations and the same jobs for the same masters for 75% of the week. They will not be paid, but in the additional quarter of the week, they can earn wages uh, on their own time uh, and they can use that money to you know, acquire property from themselves. Uh, it's a form of slavery in, well, in practice, if not in name. Uh, but again, it was thought of as a necessary part of the deal, a necessary part of the negotiation. It's the best they could get. So you know what? We have to pay out 20 million pounds. And essentially, there's going to be proto-slavery, except we're not going to call it slavery. Uh, and then we can officially end the institution of slavery. Yeah, so they, they expected it to, um, to go on until 1840. But by early 1838, there had been reports that the system wasn't working terribly well, as, as you would perhaps expect. Uh, and in anticipation of another major campaign against the institution of the apprenticeship, um, the government of the day simply decided that everybody would be emancipated from the 1st of August, 1838. I, I can only imagine, I mean, just to think that you're quasi-free, but yet not free. You're kind of in between there. But finally, we'll give you your freedom to avert another campaign or even better yet, another uprising. So it is. Yeah, it, it, it's it's a horrible state of limbo. And some of the accounts are pretty dreadful. Um, and, you know, it's worth bearing in mind that even if you know slavery, one of the worst conditions that is possible to imagine, the, the standard of living and the rights and the liberties of People of color in the parts of the British, in other parts of the British Empire at this time, were not great. The standard of living for people in the industrial north of uh, of England at the time wasn't great. So it wasn't ever going to be the case that people were going to leave the condition of slavery and enjoy something brilliant and better. There was a problem of freedom, and there's been some really great work done on, um, you know, the, the quality of living and still the endemic colonial violence. A lot of this, these people who were nominally free but still subject to all of the same atrocities and injustices that were inflicted upon uh, people across the British Empire. That is very true, and in the American. Um, counterpart to that, as we were talking about earlier, the anomaly free states of the North, that's what I've been writing about recently, you know, what that actually meant and what conditions were. Yes, you had your freedom, which meant a lot, but economically um, and racially, you were still placed in a 
subservient position in society during that time. And to get above that was extremely difficult. Um, there were many challenges that you faced. So, you know, with, you know, full emancipation, it didn't bring about exactly what we thought it would or expected would be. Um, it was still challenging economically yeah, the, and socially. The, the promise rang hollow for hundreds of thousands of people. That is very, very true. So I want to ask you, you know, do you think that the consequences of the anti-slavery movement still impact contemporary society? I'm not sure because I think the shape of British politics has changed. Sorry, to, to clarify, do you mean do you know the abolitionist camp, you know, means of campaigning or that kind of um, political the means culture? Of camp- abolitionist campaigning, political culture, in terms of, you know, the actual emancipation itself, you know, the result of it. Um, Do you think we still feel those reverberations in contemporary society of what happened? Well, certainly for in terms of British domestic political culture for the remainder of the 19th century, the abolitionist campaign as a means of participatory participatory democracy is really important. Um, It's a really valuable example. And lots of future campaigns are built around the same model. Um, In terms of how far slavery and emancipation affect British society itself and British politics, um, I mean, it's worth saying that unlike the United States, Britain quarantined its chattel slavery at the distance of several thousand miles. So the direct impact or, you know, there, there, aside from the, the compensation money that is washing through the British economy in the years after emancipation, um, it, it is possible, I think, and it's one of the reasons that Britain has this mythology of itself as just an ardently and an absolutely abolitionist nation is that the consequences of slavery remained in the West Indies and exclusively in the West Indies for a very long time. Um, by you know, achieving this thing, and, and emancipation on, on on the part of the abolitionists and you know, the, the, the the rebels in the West Indies was a great achievement. Um, it could almost be forgotten about because there simply wasn't the same presence of the free black people who were formerly slaves or their descendants in Britain to the same extent that there would would have been in America after um, eighteen sixty three. Um, that has changed, I think, um, uh, certainly from the, the 1940s, whenever um, the Windrush generation arrived in these shores um, and, and the greater um, sort of patterns of immigration from the British Caribbean and the years that followed that. Um, in, as Satnam Sangira, who's a, a friend and a, a journalist who's written about the legacies of empire in Britain, said, you know, we are here because you were there. Um, but those legacies were delayed, I think, simply by the, by the distance between Britain and its colonies for, for quite a long time. That makes a lot of sense. So what do you want readers to take away from the book? Um, it, it's not that um, Britain was bad or Britain was evil or that we should rend our garments and gnash our teeth. Um, it's that even these great moral achievements um, that British mythologizers can, you know, herald as, uh, you know, events in the pantheon of British history were incredibly complicated. They took a lot of fighting, it took a lot of moral and intellectual and economic and religious arguments um, to get where you want, where the abolitionists wanted to get. Um, 
And perhaps you can see that in you know, something similar in political campaigns today, you know, whether you or your listeners, or no matter which side of these debates they might be on, um, the same kind of arguments, the same kind of patterns of campaigning are deployed. Um, but if it looks as if um, you know you are failing to get where you want, just look at the abolitionists who were at, a, at a, an enormous hill to climb, but finally got there. I definitely agree with that assessment. Now, even though you've left academia, are you still writing? Is there anything you're working on next, per se? I am. I, I've just finished. Uh, I've finished going over the proofs today of another book on a 19th century culture war. So it is about the discovery of dinosaurs um, and the consequent battles that took place between science and religion in the 19th century. Oh, wow. That sounds fascinating. I, I hope so. <laughs> I hope my readers agree. <laughs> that really does. Just thinking about the culture wars and what that meant between scientists and the religious community um, during the 19th century, I can definitely see that being a fascinating topic. In, in, some, in, in some ways, the, the, the topics are completely different. But in some ways, the underlying question is, how do you change the opinion of a large number of people um, over something that is absolutely fundamental. Um, within the case of the interest, the question was, well, how do you change the opinion of a number of people who either have no problem or who actively support the institution of slavery? Um, in the case of the present book, it's how, how do you change the opinion of people who think that um, the, the, the earth is 6,000 years old, uh, created in six days, and who believe that um, God informs everything within nature? Um, that took a, a hell of a lot longer Um Thankfully, but I, it, again, you can see the same kinds of arguments and means of persuasion at play. Uh, that, gosh, yeah. So that kind of blew my mind right there. So that's definitely something I want to read next um, because it just seems fascinating to work all of that out and be able to try. It is, it's campaigning to try to change one's mind about something that is so entrenched in something that they believed. So. Definitely sounds fascinating, Dr. Taylor. So thank you for joining me today. Um, Not at all. I really it, was, enjoyed. It, was a pleasure to, it was a pleasure to to speak with you. Yes, I enjoyed our conversation. Readers, please go out and pick up a copy of The Interest. It is on sale now. I will tell you it is for academics. It's for non-academics. It is fascinating. It is gripping, and you will not be able to put it down because I was unable to put it down until like 4 o'clock in the morning. So readers, I urge you go out and pick up a copy today.